You're listening to Crossmodal, a podcast project made by neuroscience grad students curious about the philosophical, cultural, and artistic implications of certain topics from our classes and research. My name is Nico, and you'll be hearing me pop in and out through our various episodes. Hope that's all right. Each one will be somewhat unique in approach and theme, so we hope you'll stay tuned with us as we experiment through this pilot season. Before we begin, I'd like to give a brief content warning for mentions of animal research. Listener discretion is advised. (laughs) I have literally always wanted to say that. My time has come. Okay, anyway. This week, we're going to explore cross-modal plasticity, which, you guessed it, is the phenomenon after which this podcast was named. Big ups to Rosman Goodson, the mastermind behind this idea. While I don't want to spill the juicy details, I have to say that this episode is packed with so much amazing content. We will include an interview with Justin Coughlin, an internationally acclaimed jazz pianist, composer, record producer, and educator who acquired a form of synesthesia after losing his vision at a young age. A number of his compositions will be played throughout the episode. Titles included in all episode descriptions and in this episode's closing credits. Definitely check out his work anywhere you listen to your music. You'll also be listening in on a panel discussion with two of our favorite neuroscience experts, Dr. Alex Meredith and Dr. John Bigby plus a surprise interview with a friend of the podcast. For the sake of clarity, our interview with Justin will be played after an introductory chat between the faculty panelists and a small group of graduate students. Infinite thanks to Justin for agreeing to be a part of this, and infinite apologies too, since most of the conversation involves a bunch of nerds asking a lot of questions about your experience without you in the room. With utmost respect to Justin, our intention is to listen to his perspective, address common misconceptions about cross-modal plasticity, and discuss diverse ways in which we all experience this fascinating phenomenon. Before we start, though, please be aware that late in the episode, there is some background noise we were unable to remove. Super sorry about that, but hopefully we'll be able to upgrade our equipment as we proceed with the podcast. Okay, that's more than enough for me. Please enjoy, and thank you so much for tuning in to Crossmodal. And thank you so much to Dr. Meredith and Dr. Bigby for serving as the faculty panelist um, for our discussion today, cross-modal plasticity. To start out with, I just wanted to ask all of us assembled here, both the faculty panelist and the students present, whether they had any anecdotes about friends or family who demonstrated some type of cross-modal plasticity, whether that be synesthesia or some other variety. And then if Dr. Bigby and Meredith want to you know, contribute their knowledge to discuss with us what anatomical substrates might be behind that. Who wants to go first? Go, go for it. I can tell you it's absolutely anecdotal and who knows whether it has any basis in fact, but my wife contends that she can't hear very well if she doesn't have her glasses on or if she doesn't have her contacts in. If I'm having a discussion with her and she takes her glasses off, I should maybe take the hint. <laughs> but she contends that with her glasses off, if she can't see that well, that her she doesn't she doesn't hear conversations or music or whatever. Interesting. That's a good one. 
<laughs> I remember, this is not really like that relevant, but I remember when I was a kid, there was this show, Courage the Cowardly Dog. Do you guys remember that show? Mm -hmm. One of the traits of one of the characters was exactly that, that she couldn't hear if she didn't have her glasses on. And we were just like, haha, that's a joke. But it turns out, yeah, it's somehow this situation or th this type of circumstance seems to kind of be involved in a lot of parts of our lives we don't necessarily know. I wonder if your eyes focus your concentration. <laughs> well, that's called, that, that's, that is a known multisensory effect. It's called the cocktail party effect. In that um, if you are actually able to visualize a speaker, you get about a 20 decibel enhancement of, of the sound just by the uh, pairing of the movement of the lips. Now, it gets huh. messed up with the McGurk effect because if, if they come up there with a projection of the production of a different vowel, and, and you, it, it could be ba, and you hear ga, but actually they're saying da, and it, it can, it, you can get messed up that way. But uh, it's, it's, it's a pretty well-known multisensory effect. I guess this is a good place to leap in because there are very normal things that go on in our heads that are multisensory. This, it's basically the brain has to deal with a, uh, a world that is very unlike your neuroscience textbooks. Your neuroscience textbooks have everything parceled up in sensory system, and that sensory system is visual, or it's auditory, or it's tactile, or something like that. Your brain isn't that lucky. I mean, it has to do everything all the time. And so, in the recent decades, what we've found is, is that the, there's actually a paper out in 2005, Schroeder, Schroeder's group up in York, basically titled is the brain multisensory and it's it's basically if you go through and you categorize the number of cells that are activated by more than one sensory modality across cortex it's immense so when we talk about visual cortex there was a study done not long ago where somebody went in and measured just visual cortex and found there was something like 34 percent of cells were also influenced by other modalities and the same thing with auditory cortex, yeah, primary cortex. So, so then when you get to association cortex, which means you're they're associating between different areas of mm -hmm. connections, those multiple connections get multiplied. So you have up to 50 or 60% of just neurons in any given area of association cortex are multisensory. They're processing both vision and touch, or hearing and touch, or hearing and vision. Unfortunately, not so much is done with smell. But I can imagine balance is also in there because it's ongoing all the time. <laughs> kind of going off of the direction this conversation is taking, but what would you say are some common misconceptions that people tend to have about cross-modal plasticity as a phenomenon? And how would you say, you know, those misconceptions are incorrect? What is the actual situation? So the construct that we have is, is that we have learned that all these things are separate and we're sitting here talking about, well, this is so unique. And I'm gonna say that this is really, really a fundamental property of the brain. Yeah. And when you lose one sense, that plasticity that takes over is basically a, a default mechanism of the brain. It's basically, it's got all these balls in the air and then suddenly some of them are gone. So it then deals with the ones that are left. I've always, just, it's been curious because you know, we have these we have these these receptors and transducers, the sensory information. So touch and hearing and pain and smell, it's specific at the receptor. And then you get an action potential and it goes into the brain. 
we know it's we know it's smell or taste or touch or pressure because we associate that eventually. But the brain, when when it gets an action potential, just it, say from out of the blue, it has no information in it. It's just the signal. So it's kind of what Alex is saying. You get all this stuff coming in, and once it's in there, it, it loses its identity. Mm -hmm. And so if you connect it in a different way, it's going to fire off. And so all of that, that's a, an interesting way to look at it. We take sort of classical textbook categorization and limiting of stuff and try to apply it to biology. It didn't happen that way. We, yeah. we create, those are artificial boundaries. Essentially, this is literally the point of the podcast. <laughs> so, great, thank you. This is one of my pet peeves. <laughs> the, uh, and I remember being in a journal club at another university where they're talking about the same thing. And this student put up a slide that I use in my lectures now, where if you, for example, say lose your hearing, mm -hmm. and all that cortical mechanism that was once dedicated to hearing gets involved with processing vision, then his next slide was oh, Superman. You should be able to see through walls, okay? Mm -hmm. And you can't. I mean, it doesn't get that much better. And the thing about cross-modal plasticity is, is that it's not like a rising tide raises all ships. It's, it's one of those things where some things get better, and the interesting thing in the field is why those areas of processing in the remaining modalities get better, and why others get left alone. And it happens to be that the modules of the cortex that are involved with particular tasks, it doesn't really matter what drives them. It, it, so I was working with an area that was an auditory area that drives eye movements toward orienting toward stimuli in space. And so it, it does this normally, but if you take away hearing, it gets invaded by vision, what do you know? That area drives eye movements to visual targets now. And so it's basically the modules are dedicated towards some sort of task. There's some sort of driving module or, or modality that comes into it, but um, if you lose that, it's not too surprising that some other modality that's involved with a similar type of task gets, gets involved. There's another study I'm part of right now, this is kind of secret because it's not published yet, but um, <laughs> there's an area that's involved with identification of voices in cats. Cats can actually recognize other cats as well as they can recognize their owners. And in deaf cats, guess what? that area gets converted to recognizing faces, and it can recognize people's faces. I should have brought in my cat to speak on this matter. <laughs> so what is the time course on that? You know, like this, this, the, some of these things, if they are, if you have an instantaneous loss of vision, accident, trauma, whatever, the length of time that it takes to, to do this, that would, you know, sort of give an indication, are we looking at axonal growth, axonal sprouting, uh, whatever it might happen to be. Is it, is it in a time frame that can give a clue? That is a beautiful question. Um, Brian Allman was a postdoc in my laboratory that was just really tuned into that because everybody studies these long-term things where you have you know, individuals or animals that are deaf before the critical period and born deaf or whatever it is like that. And then, then you sample them as adults and they've had all this plasticity go on. But what happens if you do, do that in the adult? Well, he did the experiment where we actually deafened adult ferrets and waited 
several months because we thought that's what we had to do, and then recorded in their auditory cortex. And sure enough, it became transformed into responding to this, in this case, somatic sensation. And he said, well, how long does that take? And so one day he actually took an animal that had only been deaf for 14 days and put a recording electrode in the, in the auditory cortex. It was already there, 14 days. And we, we actually wrote a grant to try to do that, and it was not, a, it got triaged. But you send a grant on losing hearing to the Auditory Institute, are they interested? <laughs> are you sending a grant to the Visual Institute or, you know, for, for loss of hearing, are they interested? So all this stuff falls between the cracks and you're never gonna find it. From our discussion, we all have anecdotal experience with cross-modal plasticity and synesthesia. Whether that be putting on our glasses to hear better, or the boost to our hearing that we get when we're able to visualize the speaker's lips moving. Interestingly, this seems contrary to what we're taught in our neuroscience textbooks. Picture me scratching my head. <laughs> Often, these texts present our sights of smell, sight, hearing, touch, and taste as discrete and separate systems. However, even our personal experiences with cross-modal plasticity show that these boundaries are artificial. Instead, the areas of our brain dedicated to these senses communicate with each other, taking the individual stimuli in the environment around us and transforming them into a coherent, unified perception. When one of these sensory cortices is not being used, the brain has a remarkable capacity to rapidly repurpose it and help us continue making sense of our environment. We're going to take a break here to gain a little more insight into the ways cross-modal compensation can manifest in an individual. Let's hear from jazz musician Justin Coughlin about his story and experiences with this really cool phenomenon. So I um, was born with a degenerative disease uh, called familial exudative retinopathy. Um, I think vitriol is also in there, but I'm not sure where it fits. And it's... I. I I think a relatively complicated thing. I know from from what I understand the that both eyes sort of uh, bled internally, um, scar tissue formed, and that would what it did is it just pulled the retina off the wall, and uh, in doing so also kind of caused it caused the retinas to fold in on themselves and all kinds of just complications. So I ended up um, gradually losing my sight as a child. Um, I was able to see well enough in my younger years and. Um, it all went away finally after, uh, I think, 11 surgeries uh, at age 11. And uh, at that point, it was down to zero. Um, both, I think the doctors had tried a lot of different um, experimental operations to see if they couldn't, you know, save or salvage some of the uh, vision. But alas, uh, it all went away at age 11. And. Um, not necessarily, I don't think, I, I mean, I did lose my sight in the fact that I couldn't see the world around me the way that I used to, um, but the brain has a way of adapting and then uh, just a new way of experiencing a visual uh, representation of the world around me uh, presented itself. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? So, um, what I remember, like after the last surgery that I had, um, I remember being wheeled out on um, you know whatever on their little stretcher to get get to the car and in my mind I thought I was looking at the lights above me uh, but it was just my mind um, sort of creating an image based on what it I guess what it thought I should be seeing at that moment 
Um, but I really do remember thinking that I could see at that point. But uh, so that's my first memory of of how things would be um, after after losing my sight. So it certainly hasn't become any less colorful. At least my experience. It's just a very different. I take. I guess what I know about a place and also what I hear and what I sense and that all kind of combines into making a, a mental image for me to to use. Um, but th so that's that's how it is f for rooms and um, everything has had a I guess a semi synesthetic uh, sort of thing that happens um, where and, and this is this is stuff that occurred to me shortly after I was I went blind but I was still in you know uh, middle school and for whatever reason every classroom I would be in would be a certain color um, based on the subject um, so English was always like kind of standard like you know how the weird yellow lights are yeah um, that's kind of what I see in the English rooms um, social studies was more of a red and, and brown um, palette uh, science was always darker blue and purple and green and then math would be like sky blue um, so no matter what you know ever since then every time you know I switched years and I switched classrooms uh, the classroom would you know take on that color based on what I thought uh, of the subject um, but it also has taken on I think the most uh, representative of, of that synesthetic experience happens with music where um, I guess it's multiple layers in how it's influenced. Part of it is the actual instrument itself. Then the next level would be the timbre of that instrument, whether it's an older instrument, like a piano. If it's older, it kind of mm -hmm. is a muted. Um, but if it's like a brand new pristine and it's recorded very well, I usually see very, very sparkly white. Um, uh, and then, um, so each color kind of has its, I mean, each, each instrument has its own uh, color palette that, that I see. And part of it is, I guess, what I remember seeing as a kid before I lost my sight. But then it's it's mm -hmm. also kind of taken on its own life, where um, it's just a lot of colors. Um, and then I would say the oh. probably so the last level of things would be what's always there and is not really influenced by what I'm hearing or feeling or or uh, kind of intuiting from the from the world around me. And that is this constant stream of best way to describe it even though it's not very accurate would be I know that if you like close your eyes and you rub them real hard you start seeing flashes the fireworks kind of start happening a little bit and you're just exciting the 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 nerves I think the and so that you know what I see constantly would be that like on steroids it's it's a lot more um, solid it's not like flashes it's always there it's quite bright and gets brighter or dimmer kind of on its own own whim i guess um but for instance right now the colors that i do see in this kind of spectrum would be red um i always see quite a bit of gold is not really like the best way to to put it but there is almost like a i guess a if not in a perfect way, but it's almost like sunlight. Um, even though I'm in my room, it, it's you know, it's it's it kind of has its own own thing that it uh, uh, own space that it occupies, I guess. And I can sort of 
my goal is usually to ignore it because it can be distracting. Um, makes it, it definitely makes it hard to sleep. But um, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's the uh, experience in a nutshell, I guess. That sounds Fascinating. Beautiful. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing. Oh, no worries. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I'm trying to think what else it could be. Um, yeah, I, I pretty much, and, and I mean, I say that sound uh, in music has a, has a way of triggering different colors, but just in every day, pretty much every sound kind of elicits some, uh, some color response, I think, in my mind. Um, and it's all obviously it's all the the imagination uh part um at least as far as i i i gather it but um my my theory behind it would be that uh after i lost my sight my brain um i mean the brain is just an adaptable thing so i think it 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 remapped itself the way it it it, it thought best um obviously i didn't have like extra room because my visual cortex, <laughs> my visual cortex was already developed, so it's not like because I I am personally fascinated by folks that are are born blind because I think this this part of the brain that I think really not only remaps itself but but dedicates its energy to doing something else that um, somebody who has a developed visual cortex I think doesn't wouldn't understand. Um, and I know there's, there's, there's folks that can do the, like basically sonar um, or, or using echolocation. And usually those are, yeah. the people that do that successfully are usually people that were born blind. Um, I think it's harder for, uh, not impossible, but it does, it seems like it's harder for somebody who lost their sight um, to, 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 I guess, gain that kind of skill. I have a question. Yeah. So do you use this um, synesthesia that you experience to compose music? Um, kind of. I, you know, I think on a, on a real more subconscious level, I never, I've never really thought like, oh, um, at least not in composing. Um, I, I'd say after the song is written and uh, when I'm actually maybe considering the instrumentation, that's where maybe the color comes into play in terms of what colors I'd like to see when, when this particular song comes on. So, for instance, I see, like I said, pretty much standard white, shades of white to gray when I hear the piano. And um, that's fine. But I also, like, for, for there's an electric piano called the Rhodes, the Fender Rhodes. And when I hear that instrument, I see, like, a really awesome... Uh, oh, man, it's uh, not aqua... It's a deeper blue, um, and I'm I'm not sure exactly what what shade I would say it is, but it's it, it does kind of have a like maybe a deep sea like darker blue vibe to it, um, and I love it, and it's almost kind of uh, spherical. I don't know why shapes come into it, but that that also kind of <laughs> presents itself. So you know when I want to use that color, it's almost like yeah, I would I would use that instrument to to get that color out of it. Um, so I guess as as an arranger and as a, when I'm when I'm actually thinking about the orchestration of the composition, that's where the colors come into play. Cool. And going along that, when you are experiencing an emotion, um, could you attribute a similar emotion to a tone you might hear and to a color you might see? Man, that's a good question. I. <laughs> 
emotionally speaking, just as you're asking that question, I would say that it, I don't think it's anything too deep. Um, the thing comes to my mind is like, oh, if, 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 if I'm relaxed, if I'm really relaxed and things are peaceful, then the colors that, that present them thing, themselves to me would be, you know, all the, all the shades of sun, I think. Like, um, not, not bright sun, but like, you know, overcast or maybe red, um, like soft, like warm colors fall, I guess, leaves. <laughs> so I don't know. That's, that's just what occurs to me now. I don't, I've never really thought too much about the emotional attachment to specific colors. I do know that I respond to things based on what colors I associate with them. Um, uh, I, I, you know, um, it, this is this is really random, but I just realized I was talking to another, um, well, not another, but like a an, um, a software developer. They 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 do a lot of like um, programs f for music creation, and we were talking about the different um, workstations that you can use. Yeah, are um, like some people use Pro Tools, or some people use Logic, or there's all the you know whatever all the software, and I realized that I like using Logic. Uh, on a really weird level because I like the colors that I associate with it. It's really a colorful kind of program. <laughs> and Pro Tools has always been sort of a, this weird green color uh, to me. And, and I don't, <laughs> I kind of don't like that color all that much. So um, working with Pro Tools kind of brings that color about. Um, so I do know that I respond to things based on what color gets associated with them. And a lot of times it doesn't make any sense. I, I couldn't really explain exactly why. Um, I think Pro Tools, for whatever reason, um, the letter P gets associated with this weird, um, not not like neon green. It would be neon green, but like muted, you know, not like super bright. But that's the color oh, that a pop, you know. Cues. Yeah, it's like that's what occurs to me <laughs> with the letter P, um, f like for whatever reason. Uh, yeah. Weird stuff. Yeah, but, <laughs> but it's interesting, and um, we're glad that you're willing to speak about it with us. Oh, not a problem. A perspective that we don't necessarily have ourselves. Yeah, yeah. So no worries. From a direct source. Hey, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's funny. I think I realized it first in college because my philosophy teacher, um, he kind of liked to do things that were outrageous, I guess, you know, uh -huh. um, as I guess philosophy teachers like to do. But he was like, now, Justin, look, see, he's not blind. He just sees a different world. Um, and first I was just like, well, that's kind of stupid. But um, <laughs> it kind of has some validity, you know. Uh, it, it is a valid experience. It's just not as helpful <laughs> as, as being able to see, like, the real world in front of us. Um, but it has opened up kind of a new, um, I don't know, a new thing for sure. Cool. A new, like, avenue for navigating. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I, you know, the brain, I, the brain has a is a tremendous uh, computer, I think, and it has the uh, it being so adaptable. I think is a really remarkable thing. Yes. Yes, indeed. It has been. You're saying that to some neuroscientists. We're like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I agree. No, it is remarkable. Um, and and I sometimes I, I I remember being able to see more vividly than others in, in, in those moments I, I, re I recognize how different it is um, because I guess it does kind of live in the, in the realm of imagination 
Um, so it is almost more dreamlike the way that I do picture the world, you know, because I remember things being so, when I could see my best, it, things were so vivid. And I remember, you know, so things are more, definitely more uh, blurred. Uh, lines are not as, as, as hard uh, when, I'm, when I'm imagining something, as, as I think as most people do in their dreams. So that is, a, that is the, the main difference. Good deal. Yeah, That's, that was perfect. <laughs> yes, thank you so much. No worries. Yeah. Justin's experience with cross-modal plasticity and synesthesia after he lost his vision at 11 due to <clears throat> familial exudative vitreoretinopathy, got to high-five my cat after that one, I'll abbreviate, his condition, FEVR, made us realize just how unique individual perceptions really are. We were struck by the beauty of his descriptions, especially their hazy, dreamlike quality, and amused by his distaste for the dull lime green of Pro Tools. Justin recognizes that while these perceptions may live in the realm of his imagination, they've created a new avenue by which he can navigate the world and arrange and orchestrate music. His interview brought up even more questions as we realized that each synesthete experiences their surroundings very differently. How do Justin's perceptions shift with changes in tone, timbre, and intensity? If he were to hear an acoustic piano on his left and an electric piano on his right, would he perceive whitish gray on the left with a deep blue sea on the right? Or would it be a mixture of these colors or something else entirely? And how do Justin's perceptions differ from those of someone who was born blind and does not have the same memories of color and form? Artists and musicians with similar experiences to Justin have been around for centuries, but research on cross-modal plasticity is only just beginning to elucidate how sensory cortices change and reorganize following the onset of blindness or deafness. Since interviewing Justin, we have learned that individual modalities are very adaptable. In Justin's interview, he touched on how people who are born blind can use echolocation to navigate the world. Interestingly, there is some evidence that all babies are capable of using this, but their ability is lost in those born with intact sight. As Justin mentioned, babies born without are more likely to maintain the ability to use echolocation, which is so cool. This indicates that neurodevelopment of the modality of vision is adaptable, but the end goal is the same, to develop a way for the human to navigate the world, whether it's through the eyes, through the ears, or something else. However, Modalities remain plastic and can be trained throughout life. For example, tonal complexity in languages can be predictive of an individual developing absolute or perfect pitch. For instance, Chinese languages are more sonically complex than English. And in a study from years ago, comparing pools of advanced music students from Beijing, China, who speak Mandarin Chinese, and advanced music students from Rochester, New York, who speak English, 60% of the Mandarin speakers had perfect pitch, whereas 14% of the English speakers had perfect pitch. Perhaps this suggests that musicians could benefit from learning a second language. Up next, we delve into an open discussion of synesthesia and further explore just how unique our perceptions of the same world are. As I believe um, both of you know, when we were first preparing for this podcast, we interviewed Justin Coughlin, who is referred to us by Dr. Meredith. And over the course of our interview with him, we found that after becoming blind at a relatively young age, he developed synesthesia. And so one of our questions for you is, what would you speculate happened in his brain? What might have gotten rewired that facilitated the development of that synesthesia? And is this type of phenomenon common in individuals who become blind? 
I listened to his, his interview with tremendous interest. It was, I've listened to his jazz for years now. So hearing him explain where some of his jazz comes from was a remarkable insight into him. His descriptions, to me, don't exactly meet the definition of synesthesia. And much of the things he described is what is left in his brain that he perceives as vision once he lost his vision. So it's not something that crosses from one modality to another. It's where you blend the different uh, mm. synesthesia, aesthesia is feeling, syn meaning merging. Mm -hmm. And so he's not merging the different senses in much of his description. He's talking about his residual vision or his residual visual imagery. And most of the things he talks about were color. I wanted to hear, was there any form to that? Uh, was there any contrast to it? Did it change intensity? You know, there's all these other parameters of vision that... I will say, sorry to interrupt, but he did talk about how sometimes the colors resemble like sunset. So there's a little bit of dimension in, in the sense of it's not one like monochromatic color, mm -hmm. but a blend of, of many that like convey a field. And, the um, and then he said sometimes there's a shape, like he said something was circular. Spherical. And, yeah, yeah, spherical. Yes. I don't remember or recall specifically what that was in reference to, but. His comments about synesthesia that I fell into that definition were when he was talking about, somebody asked him a question about uh, composing music. Mm -hmm. He said he doesn't use it really for composing, but for uh, orchestrating, and because he saw different instruments in different colors, mm -hmm. and so that was sort of a sound-induced color experience, which is truly synesthetic. That's something that happens in synesthetes where whatever their association occurs is, is rather permanent. They see, most synesthetes are graphene color mm -hmm. synesthetes, so they'll see a number or a letter, and the number four is always brown to them. And therefore, when they get one of these figure ground tasks, it takes us you know, forever to evaluate. You know, like the average person might take like 40 seconds on one of these really difficult ones. And most synesthetes see it like in, 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 in normal reaction time. And so because they're hooked up to see those colors in association with particular letters or numbers. So he was talking about instrumentation having that sort of synesthetic experience. So I'm not saying he doesn't have it, I just think that He's interpreted much more broadly than I think other people do. And then quick shout out to how he would see colors depending on the audio editing program. Yes. That's really stuck with me. I, I found that so Yeah, it was so specific. I wasn't expecting that. So he had tone color associations? No, no not really. No, or sensations of different colors or shapes that were visualized in his mind's eye with certain keys? Certain instruments. Yeah. Way he'd certain instruments. Yes. Okay. Which were almost like the rooms that he was describing right. where he would go for, you know, when he was in school to, into different subjects. Mm -hmm. So he, he kind of came up with a color palette for certain subjects. And he's got it now a color palette for programs. We should ask him about Microsoft Word. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> he was talking about when I play one piano, a new piano, I see mostly blacks and whites, so that's the visual perception. And then I play the electronic, the Rhodes piano, and he sees more gray color or something. So just this slight difference in tone was producing that. But what does that look like? 
<laughs> I wanted to ask him when he hears two musical instruments together, like a piano and a flute, or is it what happens? Colors, or is it just you see the separate, separate colors? Very cool clarification of synesthesia. What better way to round out this section than through a conversation with another individual who has their own type of sound-based synesthesia? Luckily, our very own Kristen introduced us to her synesthetic friend, Christiana. Here's an interview between Christiana and another member of our team, Megan. We're joined here today by Christiana, who is a cat-loving dentist, and she has synesthesia. Thank you so much for being here with us today, Christiana. We're so excited to have you, and we're really excited to dive into all of our millions of questions to learn more about your experience with synesthesia. So let's begin. We're going to start off generally here. So Christiana, can you tell us how you experience synesthesia? In what form does it present itself? Well, I guess I would say that when a... Um, name comes to mind and my synthesia is really only um, pertinent to names. Um, I just see a real quick little image pop up. Other words that are not names do not evoke an image. And that's about it. Let me give you an example. Uh, when I hear the name Megan, I think of bacon. Real quick, boom pops up, goes away. Why does that happen? I have no idea. So, How and when did you first realize you are a synesthete? When this officially started, I guess, I would say I realized that this was out of the ordinary, I should say. Um, in college, I don't know, I guess we were just joking around with some friends. And um, I specifically remember... In the dining hall, people would ask me, what do you see when you hear my name? And I would tell them. And then a couple months later, they would ask me again just to verify that it was the same image that would pop up. And sure enough, it was. And I always reassured everybody that the image that I see associated with your name has absolutely nothing to do with you. You know, like it, it's just an image that comes to mind when I hear the name, it doesn't mean that that's what I think of you. It's just something that I experience. So no hard feelings at all if you don't like the word or if you don't like the image that I see when I hear your name. How does synesthesia impact your daily life? Does it affect how you view the world? Honestly, I don't think it has a negative impact on my life at all. Um, like I said, it it's when I hear a name, an image pops up real quick, and then I, you know, just proceed on as I would in any other form of life. They usually make me laugh when I, you know, tell somebody about it because it's totally random. Like I had mentioned previously, I didn't even know that this was something different until college. Talking about it with my friends in the dining hall, it was a lot of fun. It was just silly. Um, so... Really, I'd say it has no profound impact on my life and uh, kind of brings back fun memories. Okay, and I'm curious here about this one. What type of imagery do you experience when someone calls your name? When I hear my name, I honestly think of like bunny slippers and in specific like fuzzy pink bunny slippers. And I have no idea why 
it's just what it is. But that's the image I see when I hear my name. Is the synesthetic experience you have different when you see a name written down versus hearing it out loud? I have to say when I see a name written down, I really experience nothing, no imagery. So it, I guess my synthesis, I would have to say, is really only when I hear a name. Would you say that this is a form of synesthesia related to tones and sounds? You know, everyone pronounces names somewhat differently, but regardless of how it's pronounced, I still see the same image. So with that being said, I would say no. What do you see when it comes to last names or names that aren't so common? I mean, there are times when I'll hear a slightly uncommon name and I just don't get an image at all. Um, but there are times when I will hear an uncommon name and I do get an image. I, I really don't know where these images come from. It's, it's very peculiar. Um, they have really nothing to do with a memory associated with a person with that name and the image I see. Um, and last names, I guess, don't really speak to me with imagery as first names do. So I would have to say that it's really only common that I get an image with, you know, a relatively common first name um, and not so much last names and uncommon first names. All right, Christiana, so let's play a little game here if you're okay with that. I'm going to list our podcast team members' names, and if you can, please describe what image comes to mind. So let's start off with Andy. Okay, Andy. Honestly, I see a Nike check mark. Kristen. Kristen. Basket of bread. Roz. Roz. Sorry, Roz. I, I won't get anything for you. Nico. Nico. It's like a, like a melt-in-your-mouth wafer-type candy. <laughs> Martina. Martina. Martina, for you, I get like a, a woman's headscarf. And my name, you actually already mentioned earlier, Megan. Megan. Well, Megan, I used your name in example previously. Um, so I, when I hear Megan, I see bacon. And again, like I said, all of you, this has nothing to do with you personally. I don't know why these happen, but this is, this is just what I get when I hear your names. <laughs> okay, and this is going to be a fun one. So can you... Tell me about what image do you see? Do you see an image at all when you hear our podcast name, Crossmodal? Well, this will make you laugh because real quickly, when I hear Crossmodal, I think real fast of those old school screensavers that would have like the pipes that would just be, you know, randomly built and then they would disappear as black screen, colorful pipes. Some of you might relate to that. So real quick, when I hear, hear cross-modal, boom, that's the image I get. Do you think it's genetic? Do other people in your family have synesthesia as well? Not that I'm aware of, um, but I will ask. And if I find out, 
if anyone else in my family experienced it, I will definitely let you all know. And um, maybe they would be interested in answering some questions for you too. Haha, <laughs> bacon. Thanks, Christiana and Megan. Now back to the panel discussion, where we'll begin to discuss any distinguishing characteristics of cross-modal plasticity in individuals born without certain senses versus those who experienced sensory loss. Roz? So another thing that some of us were curious about, clearly not all people um, necessarily experience the same types of sensory loss. For instance, on one hand, you might have people like Justin Kauflin who did initially have all senses, but then lost their vision later on in life. But how would you compare their rewiring, their cross-modal plasticity to someone who say was born blind or to someone, for instance, like Helen Keller, who was missing more than one sense? If you could comment on what the differences there might be. Certainly it would depend on how, how well the circuitry is established. Well, some of the studies that done in collaboration with lab at University of Western Ontario, Steve Wommer's lab, we made a strong distinction between animals that received their, their lesion, their hearing loss, before the critical period of auditory development and those that received it afterwards. And when the data was analyzed from those experimental animals, there was a real big difference in the populations. There were changes that occurred that were picked up from the neonatal group that were not much larger than the ones that were picked up in the adult group. And we've sort of started branching off into that since there weren't large connectional changes that seem to happen where new areas suddenly project into, say, in a deaf animal uh, that's deafened before the critical period. You don't get new neurons growing in from visual areas into the auditory cortex. They just don't show up. Occasionally there's some small shift in those, but there's not new areas that show up. The other remarkable thing is, is the amount of connectivity between deaf auditory cortex basically stays the same, even though it's not telling its, its neighbors anything at all that has to do with patterned hearing. And so what we think is, is that the, the vision creeps in there pretty fast, and that is where the activity-dependent maintenance of, of synapses occur. But what we're doing is we're seeing Dr. Klimos, who works here uh, at VCU, is, is looking at a synaptic context. Do they change during loss of hearing? And in fact, they do change a lot. You get a significant increase over time with the number of synaptic contacts in these cross-modally reorganized areas. And so that seems to be more the mechanistic base for how this occurs, rather than growing whole populations of new regions projecting into it. I think it's what it is, it's upregulating the ones that are already there. Does that correlate with increased branching? We didn't see that. Branching. We didn't see that. Unfortunately, we're using Golgi tissue oh. rather than, you know, so the branches get cut off and we don't get to sample a lot of branches. Because oh. if, if you're making more synapses, it takes two to tangle. Yeah. So mm -hmm. you've got to have both sides. Oh, you mean axonal branching? I picked yeah. that up as dendritic branching. Well, e either one. I mean, I That's exactly what we would expect, but we haven't been able to map that. Oh, right. I did have one final question before opening the floor to any additional comments or questions from our audience. And kind of moving out into a broader sphere, clearly cross-modal plasticity hasn't always been recognized as such until fairly recently in human history. But I was wondering if you could comment on what you think the cultural or historical relevance of this phenomenon might have been, whether in literature and art, 
other fields. Well, certainly when you see artists that produce a very unique art form, when you think of a Picasso, is that where this sort of creativity or uniqueness comes from? Thinking back, Homer was supposed to fly in the entire Odyssey was composed and recited by memory. Oh, he was blind up from birth? I wasn't there, but I do look, <laughs> I do look like I'm older than you are, but I wasn't um, No, I don't, I don't know if he was blind from birth. John Milton, Paradise Lost, yeah. without writing a single note, he just dictated it to his daughter. There's a, a number of well-known composers that could never read or write music. They, they had somebody translate their music onto it. Maybe it's a different, more free, expressive way for the music, and it just kind of comes out. There is a lot of historical context to blind musicians, to blind poets. Hence the myth that when you know, these poor people that really suffered a lot, but look, they get superpowers and something else. <laughs> I'm not sure that they are actually, in fact, measurably better in some features of visual perception, at least the deaf people, or that blind people are better in measures of auditory perception, but not all features, like I said earlier, they don't get to see through walls. <laughs> I remember a seminar we had actually just popped into my mind. Uh, some speaker came and talked about how they determined that deaf individuals had better peripheral vision, I think, mm -hmm. than intact, if that, that's the language used, uh, individuals. So that's just something I remember hearing about during this time. All right, are there any other questions for our panelists? I was going to bring up a comment. So I had attended a lecture given by George Didrikson in London, um, and he was talking about TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation, and he had a pianist on the stage play a repeated note with one finger, and he actually, before they had started doing this, like he, w he was basically looking at whether you can shut down the activity, the ability of that person to play the note using the transcranial magnetic simulation. So what he did is have them play for a long period of time so that more cortical space could be dedicated to this. And then later had stimulated and saw if it was affecting their playing after I don't know how long it was, but they had done these studies in the lab as well. Um, and they were unable to play the note because more cortical space was like now dedicated. He was stopping that, inhibiting that process from occurring. And so it was really interesting to see and I just thought I'd bring that comment up because it's quite relevant to this, the idea of like more space in the brain being dedicated for certain things and how the brain can be plastic and we can have changes like that. But when Dr. Meredith brought up the idea in the beginning that there is already this inherent dedication of the crosses of the different senses together, that just blew me away. And then now I guess it's more, because I was thinking of it in very, very rigid terms as well. So I, I thought that was very interesting to have brought up and mm -hmm. just wanted to throw that in there. If anyone wants to comment on that, you <laughs> can. Well, if you think of the original biological state of a single cell, it's got to sense everything. Yeah, exactly. And it would basically spend all of evolution to learn to dissociate everything so we can experience individual sensory qualia, basically, of, of light, of sound, of touch. But I think we all start off in that ooze as, as I like that chemical, we get away from that light, you know. Yeah. And that was all in one place. So this is kind of not really related to what Megan said specifically, but do you think we could argue that infants, to some extent, are synesthetes? Or would that be maybe 
too much of an exaggerated claim. I don't know if you'd be able to test that at all. Maybe that rigidity forms later in life. Right. They, well, there's a whole theory on that that, that has come up. There are two theories that come up. Piaget and von Helmholtz were classical mm -hmm. psychologists back in the 20th, 19th centuries. They basically thought that we all started out being very unimodal and learned to associate between senses. And since then, a lot of data started to accumulate exactly from your perspective in that if you look at experimental animals and you put tracers in their brains at a very young age, they've got connections everywhere. Mm -hmm. And it's our experiences that refine mm -hmm. our sensory mm -hmm. definitions then. So, so I, think, I think you're right on with that. So that's why all the babies kind of look at you kind of weird. <laughs> You've got a green nose. Oh, goodness. <laughs> You've got three noses. Yeah. <laughs> Any additional questions or comments? I really like Justin Coughlin's interview in that it raised the question of here was somebody that had experienced vision. So he could very articulately say, oh, that was an azure blue, or that was a deep blue, or that was a sky blue, or that, but he no longer sees them as a response to something in his environment, but he once experienced that. But now he's a person that's blind. And I'm wondering if, if he could be like, like we can't imagine what his world was like, but he's described it a little bit to us. But I wonder if him or people like him to look at people, and he raises this question, that were born without ever experiencing vision. Do they see colors, but they don't know what they're seeing? Yeah. How, how, oh. could, can somebody that's, that's been late blind be used to help explain what people were perceiving that were early blind or never saw? And then the question is, is that color the same as what we see as our colors? Exactly. Well, well even we, among us here, we still wonder that. Are we actually seeing the same thing? Well, I, th I, think, I think the study has been done, the psychophysics of that is like, we can look at that uh, screen up there and pick so, the reddest of the red up there. Mm -hmm. And psychophysically, your interpretation of that red and my interpretation will be slightly different. Yeah, we all have different retinas. I know. It's just like it's talking so with someone who's colorblind. Mm -hmm. You know, the red, green, mm -hmm. colorblind or whatever. You know, what, you, you say, how can you appreciate the world if you can't see color? Well, they can see color. They just, so we can't hear beyond a certain pitch. Dogs can, you know, or some people can. You know, you would say, how can you live if you can't hear beyond a certain number of decibels? Well, we do just fine, thank you. <laughs> because we don't know that other one. So a colorblind person knows that's the world. And they learn that this is, we tell, you know, that's green, that's red. That's that. Might not look like our green or red, but that's their world. And then that actually brings up David Eagleman's uh, work where he's trying to extend our sensory abilities, like where he wants to create a pack so we can experience like technology. I think I showed you, yeah, there's a TED talk on this, um, where he's trying to, he built a pack so that we can experience what technology sounds like. It's, it's quite interesting. The TED talk is actually very interesting. And I don't yeah. think it's that long. So. Definitely check it out. Well, while we're on that topic though, of, of what other people perceive and how totally biased we as humans are to vision. There was an article, I think it was in New Scientist magazine, about how dolphins perceive sonar. Yeah. And, and, and they're, they're, you know, they, they had these dolphins in a pool and they were hanging these 
different shaped objects down into the pool and they would train the dolphin to go to the one that looked like a plus rather than the circle and they get a reward for the plus. And so they would, the dolphins then would image that. And so then what did the people that wrote the article do? They showed you a picture of, of a highly colorized plus and circle. It's, it's a visual photograph. You know, it's not what the dolphin perceives. It's, it's what we're perceiving of what the dolphin is sensing with this other array, but who knows what that is. Okay, I will follow up to that, but first I'll say that thank you for mentioning what you did because we, normal is relative, right? So everybody experiences the world and their realities in their own distinct ways. And I said this in the last one, but there's seven billion brains, so there's seven billion different ways to live and to be. Yeah. Anyway, Justin Coughlin, he talked about echolocation in humans. Any words about like humans developing echolocation? And was that a device that, that he made? We're, we're very good at that in, in terms of being able to detect the positions of things. You know, we always think visually we can look up or down. But I think Dr. Meredith invited a speaker years ago and talked about you know, these curly cues and these things in our ear, this, our pinna, the external ear, they're not there just for show. They're, no, they're for hanging pins. They're, oh, yeah. <laughs> they're for fashion. They are, they're there to help reflect sound that's coming from different angles. So we elevation. can, elevation. So we can perceive things this way, both by volume and by just if it's arriving a little bit later on one side or the other, so there's no reason we couldn't do that. It's probably because our sense of hearing isn't as sensitive to detect the bounce back. Yeah. But we're all wired to be able to do that because we do it every day. And what's slightly connected to that is that owls, their entire face shape is created so that they can allow for sound to come in very rapidly and so they can respond rapidly to get their prey. It's very mind-blowing. You know what else happens with owls? is that to reduce the ambiguity between the visual and the auditory world, they can't move their eyes. <laughs> their eyes are completely... That's fixed. why the head goes around? Yeah, that's why the head goes around. <laughs> and their head is where the ears are positioned, so their eyes and their ears are always in alignment. <laughs> it's incredible, yeah, they gotta get to the prey oh. as soon as possible. Yeah, there's some really brilliant <laughs> experiments by a guy at Stanford, Eric Nitzel, on prey localization and owls. Yeah. Auditory and visual. He, he was there when I was there, and he had on the roof of the building where we were this gigantic aviary of all these owls. It was so fun to go up there and look at all his owls. So much wisdom. <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily say that the fact that I know that the air duct is over there is like echolocation, but. Still, the fact that I'm able to do that, that sense or ability could be enhanced in somebody who just has the capacity to localize things yeah. in space. But we have enormous amounts of uh, ability for training. Mm -hmm. I mean, when, you, when you look at a musician's portions of motor mm -hmm. cortex, like if they're, they're an instrumentalist, you know, and they play with one hand, you know, mm -hmm. the fret or something like that, that hand, those fingers mm -hmm. get like expanded in that part of their cortex. Uh, uh, people with perfect pitch can perceive the note and tell you basically in another modality using language or, or written words, you know, that, oh yes, that's a C sharp. That's a B flat. Yeah. 
you can do that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that just and that just builds on the way the brain, I mean the homunculus, right? Yeah, exactly. It's already built that way. We basically have this very stepped one, two, three, four, you know, seconds or thirds, mm -hmm. and occasionally when we get excited, we might go to a fourth, you know, in, in our steps. But in Chinese, if it's a certain note and the same word, it means this thing, but if it's another note, it means yes. something else. Yeah. And it's, it's not just going stepwise from here to here, it's the path to get there. Yeah, like is it up, it's down the or down or on, on going from there to there. It's, it's, even though they say that during your learning years, we make every sound that the human voice box can make, and then we refine that, forget that, and we, we, we hone down to those that we need to use. So like if you try to make the perfect Spanish R, we did that fine when we were six months old or eight months old, but we never use it, so it just never... But we, we could do that very well at that age. We could make every other sound at that age. But now the circuit doesn't allow that. You have to train it. And even if at a later stage, you hear kids that learn a second language when they're 10, 5, or whatever, and they, they speak it without an accent. If we try to do it, we might be grammatically and constructionally perfect. But a native speaker will go, you know, <laughs> Need, I mean, like, that's just something about how we might need to modify our educational system to allow exactly. for us to yes. learn languages earlier on, and then that might affect how we play music and do all these other things. And so, like yeah, that, 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 that flexibility yeah. though goes away when the critical period for that ends. type of development ends. It's like six, eight, six years old, right? Yeah, yeah I think for hearing, it's all the way up to thirteen. Oh. Hearing a language, and it's, it, it in, in my wife's family, it's really funny. They moved here from England. And she was already 16, so I can always tell when she's on the phone with somebody. It's oh hello, you know. Cause, cause, and, you know, she goes right back to the to the, to the strong English accent. But her youngest brother moved here when he was like six, and he's he's Moroccan as can be. That's like my mom. She was born in Nigeria, but she grew up in London, so she has both. Then there's a different music to the language. Mm -hmm. like, yep, cadence is completely different. So, like, my wife is a native Spanish speaker. And so when she talks to her parents at home, I love so much to listen to her because it's musical. It's true, it's more expressive because that's her native language. But this, the music of the language is so different. English is, and that's another thing you can't really get, listen from outside. How does English sound? And how does English sound to a native French speaker? Or, I have a French friend that actually imitates John Wayne so well. And none of the words he says is English, but it just sounds just like John Wayne. He, he can do that imitation. But then kids who grow up in households that speak multiple languages, you can kind of have that qualifying characteristic where you can tell. Well, there was, and there was this huge pushback to say, well, you shouldn't be teaching multiple languages to children when they develop because they're just gonna end up speaking Spanglish. You know, or some some fusion of the language, and they can't sort it out. If you learn a second language, it's not as though you just take that language and super stuff it into the same area that you use. It's kind of a different area that is developed for that second language. And so kids just parse that out. If mom speaks English and dad speaks French, it's no big deal. And they just parse it out and they, they deal with it. It's amazing. There's a, the opposite side of this. 
getting into deprivation. There was a study, and I can't pull up her name at the moment. She's at Northwestern in Chicago. Did a comparison of language exposure of human children up to the age of, I guess, preschool age, and compared the income levels. And so she went into a very depressed area and just recorded over time the amount of words spoken to children in these depressed areas versus kids that were, I guess we would consider normal suburbanites or whatever. And it turned out that these kids are uh, exposed to like four million less words before the preschool area. And so if language is the, the beginning of growth of intellect mm -hmm. and, and reasoning and you're uh, dealing with complex information society and you're already starting off with four million less trials, it's, it's a really huge handicap to come up against. I haven't been able to follow up on what our studies are, if there's any successful remediation, but just that measurement just absolutely stunned me that some parents just don't have the opportunity. You just, you stimulate your children by just talking with them, reading to them. So that's the other side of the coin is, is that, you know, instead of enhancing performance, you can actually take it away by, by not training the brain enough. That's a really important thing to bring up. Yes. Wow. There's something else I was thinking of in relationship to uh, Justin Coughlin's interview, and I was thinking about one of the other things to ask him is, is that you know he does perceive these colors in relationship to the type of instrument that's played. But what I wanted to know, one thing was, was that there are multiple instruments are playing. Is there a blending of those colors, or do they get parcelated? Is part of his visual field green, and the other part red, the other part white, and do they kind of move around? Uh, the other thing I also wanted to know is, is that hearing is a very localizable sort of thing. We know things are behind us. We know yeah, things are in front yes. of us from, from their position in auditory space. And I was just wondering is if he played a piano on the right side, if part of his vision would reflect that spatial distribution. So it would light up the right side of his visual field, or if it would be a block sort of thing, or not. One way is to test a little bit more about the mechanism of his cross-modal plasticity mm -hmm. would be to ask questions about if you can tease the system apart a little bit. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. And use what he's already told us, what instruments, if he's got more than one, or if the location of an instrument changes where the, the, the colors come on. Mm -hmm. That's a great question. I was also wondering about, so in his, <laughs> in his interview, he mentioned that in the past he had seen rigid edges when he saw, when he saw colors, so like that's the defined edge, but now it's become more nebulous, like where it's almost like a dreamlike state where he sees the colors kind of path, they're not bounded by anything. And I thought that was such a beautiful way to see life for one. But then the other thing is it might speak something to our dreams as well, because he said it's kind of like a dreamlike state where we're, we're seeing things like without boundaries as much or it's kind of hazy, but I just thought I'd throw that in. <laughs> I thought it was a beautiful thing. <laughs> well, that's absolutely brilliant, because that actually had me thinking, and I forgot to mention this, but I had me thinking too, is, is, is it, are his dreams more vivid or more oh, edged? Yes. Because his, his visual imagery of his, I dream in color, I don't know if you mm -hmm. guys do, but yeah. supposedly not everybody dreams in color. Oh, really? Oh. So do you just see black and white? Color isn't relevant. Like, oh. it, I don't know if it's black or white. I don't know. It's just, there's no color. 
unless it's part of the narrative or something. Like one time I had a dream when a character, one of the characters had purple hair. That's the only color that I had ever seen. Ever seen. And that's when it occurred to me that I don't see color. Anyway. But yeah, so I wonder if his his shapes in his visual imagery is different when he's asleep in his dreams than whenever he's awake and conscious and trying to depend on what wouldn't have, you know, at an early stage in his life come in from his receptors. Yeah. But now the receptors aren't there and operational. So that system then goes looking for other inputs. But his visual imagery for his dreams might still be as intact as they were when he was 11. He may have never even thought of right, making exactly. that connection. Yeah. Right. Which is why I think about your dreams. Mm -hmm. you, know, you kind of say, because if someone says, do you dream in black and white, do you dream in color? I dream in black and white, as mm -hmm. far as I can remember. I don't remember my dreams very well at all. But I'm pretty sure it's black and white. But I wouldn't even consider that a question until someone said, really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Same. Exactly. It's sort of like colorblind people. Them. That's their world, and they don't even think about it. And that's what, so on Friday, we interviewed Kristen's friend, Christiana, who has a form of oh, synesthesia. Yeah. And what happens with her is anytime she hears a name, she sees an image. They're not that, all names, but. Yeah, yeah. not all names. And but not really complicated last name that seemed like. If I tell you a name. Oh, yes. The, can you make that the vision of that face in your head. Yes, I can, I can see so this other person. What, does your, what does your, think of your mother, what do they look like? Think of anybody. Do you see that face or no, not? No, I see the face, I, I see what wearing. I remember I you mentioning this at a meeting and voice. I also have the same thing. I can remember certain details, but I can't see the whole face together. Yeah. Like if they have dimples, I'm like, oh, I, I can remember that they have dimples, but I can't remember. So I would be terrible at like, if somebody committed a crime or something, I wouldn't be able to describe their face yeah. at all. But some people see it as though they're looking at a photograph. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But about the Christiana thing, so she didn't know that this was something perhaps different from a lot of other people until college when she brought it up to Kristen. Yeah, so interesting. And actually, I wanted to ask one thing. I do have to actually go, but I wanted to ask another thing about, so earlier, Dr. Meredith brought up the idea that there's areas of different cortices for different senses that have crossover between, I guess, representation of all the different senses in each different cortical area. So, but you said for smell, though, there isn't so much. I didn't say that. I said oh. the research isn't there. Oh, the really, research. That's what I want to add. Okay, so it wasn't the really as Dr. Bigby pointed out, is, is we got to know a lot about receptors very early on because they were very accessible for research. And a lot of fields were driven by study sections that were populated by people that did the research on, on the receptor organs. And I know in the auditory field, it was almost impossible to get a, an auditory cortex grant funded for years oh, wow. because everybody was working in the periphery. And they see everything as very singular as what's in the periphery. So nobody really asked the question is a much broader representation than what we would see in the periphery. And when people have, it's really much more pervasive. The richness of the memory that's evoked from a smell. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's why I was bringing this up. Much, much more. You, you mm -hmm. smell something and you hear it, taste it, see it, yes. feel you it, go there. the whole yeah. thing. Whereas if you look at a picture, it tends to it's be... Not the same. I, I have this argument with uh, Dr. Klimo all the time, though, because she, she thinks that, that uh, very much like you, the smell is this 
uber sensation. And I'm thinking that, my thinking is, is that smell is so impoverished in humans that we don't have a lot of noise in smell. How are you going to describe the smell of this room? Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. 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 We are so impoverished. And, and well, when something stands some up, smells. it really gets way above threshold much faster than anything. The, we're in a visually rich environment every time we open our eyes. Yeah. We're in an auditory rich environment every time we wake up and, and, and even listen. But with smell, it's like not until something turns on. And we have so few receptors. I mean, who's yeah. got a dog around here? Yeah. I've met dogs. <laughs> well, you know, dogs have like 10 million receptors. We've yeah. Got, what, two? So, so, yeah. So, so. Just look at the ventral side of our brain and you see these these almost silly like, little yeah. olfactory. Yeah. Right. What are those? That's it. That's is that an afterthought? <laughs> yeah. So, so my oh, argument oh. Is, is that because we have such an impoverished sense of smell that when something does happen, it gets embedded in memory because that it's so unique. That's, I'm gonna mention my mom again. She's, she's gonna be so shocked that I'm talking about her this much. But we <laughs> we have me and her seem to have really strong senses of smell compared to everybody else in her family. But then it's funny thinking about how even oh. it, like that the strong for a human it's nothing compared to most other species. <laughs> nothing. Can you imagine being a dog and just having your nose out the window? Such, oh, such, a, <laughs> such a feast. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> interesting that the perfume industry is so huge though. <laughs> like there's so much boom with trying to create scents and there's so much that goes into like trying to make a smell come out. It evokes a very specific thing. Yeah. Or sensation or emotion. I love perfume so I'm like very fascinated by this. Well, this has been a great discussion. Um, unfortunately, I personally have to run off to class. We have to run. Yeah, it's been over an hour, so. Uh, oh, okay. You got, you got more than enough. Yeah. Yes. But thank you again so much. This was fun. This was yes. fun. Yeah. Thank Thanks you guys so much for coming. Thanks for organizing. In our open discussion, we touched on a number of different topics. So let's take a moment to summarize them before we wrap up. We concluded that babies are possibly naturally born synesthetes that can attend to all sensory experiences. And later, their synaptic pathways are refined to respond only to the most pertinent stimuli. We talked about red-green color blindness and how individuals with this condition have the same concept of red and green as someone without, but they perceive red and green differently. We also talked about the possibility of echolocation in humans and how our ears are folded just so to help us localize sounds. Language acquisition also came up and the remarkable plasticity the developing brain has to allow young children to speak multiple languages as though they were native speakers. We spoke of dreams and how each of us variably perceives or doesn't perceive color in our dreams and how we often don't think about the uniqueness of our perceptions. Finally, we spoke on the sensation of smell, a sensory modality that is rather underdeveloped in humans, but can evoke vivid memories if a whiff of just the right scent is caught. Though our discussion was broad, each point underscored the notion that perception is unique. As mentioned in episode one, there are more than seven billion brains in the world, and so there are more than seven billion ways in which our world is interpreted. While some of us dream only in black and white, others see rich, deep sea blues in response to the sounds of an electric piano. There are even some people who see a piece of bacon whenever anyone talks about our friend Megan. Our brains connect all of the sensory input we receive in the world to create rich, vibrant perceptions that are unique to each of us. Oh, this is all so complicated. No wonder this episode was so long. <laughs>
Special thanks and acknowledgements to our esteemed guests, Justin Coughlin, Dr. Alex Meredith, Dr. John Bigby, and Dr. Christiana Calabat. Student participants were Dr. Megan Syad, Rosamond Goodson, Andy Pitts, Ian McConnell, and myself. This episode of Crossmodal was produced and directed by Rosamond Goodson and Dr. Nico Ikanam and edited by Dr. Nico Ikanam and Andy Pitts. Our logo was designed by Hannah A.U. Our theme track was produced by Josh Rodenberg. Intermittent summaries in this episode were each accompanied by a Justin Coughlin composition. In order, those were Looking Forward, Lost, and Coming Home. Special considerations to Andy Pitts for introducing us to the wonderful world of audio engineering and providing us with equipment. Get in touch with us on Twitter and Instagram at crossmodal underscore pod or by sending us an email at heycrossmodal at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Be sure to come back next time for a third episode all about the science of beauty and its maddening effects from all sorts of perspectives. You won't want to miss it. Thanks for tuning in and stay safe out there, y'all. Until next time.